Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out. Starring Phil Horander and Phil Schaff. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. Since the dawn of man looking to the skies has been a reminder of the vastness of space in comparison to the smallness of human beings, the infinite possibilities that have yet to be discovered, the power in which it holds, and the wonderment that it evokes in our finite human hearts. We've looked to the skies for answers. We've questioned its origins, and we've become increasingly curious about its potential as our science and technology advances. And ever since the launch of Sputnik 1 by the Soviet Union in 1957, space has become more than just an awe-inspiring picture to gaze into. It has become a competition. Welcome to this episode of the Missing Chapter Podcast, where today we'll discuss the space race, but not in the typical sense, as we delve into declassified documents that may reshape how you view our own moon, and make you rethink what you were taught in the history textbooks about our plans for space. Welcome back to The Missing Chapter, everybody. I'm Phil Horner here with Phil Schaff. We have a nice treat for you today. Um, we, we try to do a number of different topics on our show and cover a lot of different time periods and a lot of different countries. And this one is completely off the radar, and I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. It's a nice treat whenever we get to pod And Phil, you brought in a nice treat for me this morning, a nice customized latte from the Utica Roasting Company. Something off the menu a little bit here. Off the menu. Yeah. When I walked in, I wanted to surprise you with a a latte. It was uh, kind of shocking to me to notice that their normal menu was gone. So I'm like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? I described some of the things that you liked. And uh, the woman behind the counter, uh, thank you, Ann, said, uh, I got something for you I think uh, your friend would like. So sure enough, she, she created a customized latte with honey, cinnamon, vanilla, uh, pretty fantastic, I would say. Yeah, it was really, really good. Um, it almost tasted like a gingerbread. I think yeah. that's how I described it to you. It was really good, and I appreciate that, Phil. Phil, one of the things I always enjoyed growing up and learning about and studying uh, was the space program, NASA. And with the recent um, additional launches that we've had in our in our nation over the last couple of, of years, I've kind of gotten back into that. You know, we took a family vacation when I was younger to um, Kennedy Space Center, which is it was fantastic. But I'm really excited because there's a nice space twist to a, to the story that you're going to tell us today. I'm looking forward to it. Absolutely. So this is, <laughs> I think it, it's it's very, um, the time is appropriate. Mm-hmm. You have Tesla launching um, a bunch of things, excuse me, uh, SpaceX. You also have, um, you know, the the a lot of these people coming forward saying that they've seen UFOs and all this stuff. So I, I totally agree with you. I think Right now, you're going to see almost that heightened awareness of, of space programs. You have the Space Force, of course. You have China launching satellites and, and so forth, uh, rockets into, into orbit. So you have all these different things happening all at once. Um, it it, it kind of is reminiscent of that space race. So I, I do want to start there, uh, starting with Sputnik 1 uh, in the early 1950s. So I think what we should do is start with the origins, work our way up. Because what I think is going to happen at some point you're going to experience what I experienced after hearing the beginning portion of the story and then doing more research. Um, it kind of changed the way I viewed some of the things 
that are happening currently. Right. And I think your starting point where you start with kind of the history of space is everyone's starting point. Right. When it shouldn't be. That's true. Right. That's a very good point. So let's talk early 1950s. Obviously, technology is beginning to increase, especially with rocket technology. You know, after World War uh, II, you have a lot of these new technologies coming forward. And uh, with World War II kind of uh, economy, you, you'd have the, the funds to create certain technologies like rockets. So the first satellite launch, especially with this new rocket tech, was pretty much imminent. Uh, whether it be in the 50s or 60s, they really couldn't figure out. Uh, either the United States couldn't, but with the launch of Sputnik 1, things are going to change. Now, what I didn't know is that there was a global effort, a cooperative effort, trying to study the Earth. It was called the International Geophysical Year, also known as the IGY. And that was going to take place in 1957 and 58. So think about this. What better way to measure the Earth than from the outside of the atmosphere? And it's kind of difficult to imagine that prior to the space race, everything we knew about space, our environment, et cetera, we learned from inside the atmosphere. Mm. You know, So that's kind of tough. So getting that first satellite up, could and, and would change absolutely everything. So the IGY, this committee, collectively thought that, hey, we got to add a satellite to a launch program, okay? That that would be a good idea. They said, hey, let's, let's put our funds together. And once that was decided, the, quote, space race was immediately becoming a reality. The IGY thought that there were probably six nations that had the capability to launch a satellite. You got to think of the top two, the United States, Soviet Union. Uh, the United Kingdom was one of them. France was one of them. Japan and Australia, which you never think of Australia in the space program, but they, they did say that I think that was one of the six nations in the world that could launch uh, a satellite at that time period. And obviously Japan, you think of as being a technological right. superpower. But in the 50s, yeah. you're talking about a country that had recently experienced two devastating atomic bombs. Yeah. But it, it just goes to show just how quickly they're recovering. Exactly. And what they're basing their economy around. Yeah, that, that's, Interesting. That's a great point. That's a great point. And, and you also have to put something else in perspective here, too. The United States was chosen as one of the, the top six that had the, the capabilities. But remember, this is before NASA. Mm -hmm. So this was all before you, you take you know, the top scientists uh, and put them together and to form NASA. So now this isn't just about, you know, can we get to space? It's more about how we use space. Okay. And this is kind of where the, the direction of this episode is going to take us. So if we take it to a more competitive and maybe even military edge, the question really should be how to use the space we have safely. Okay. So Sputnik 1, that's launched into low Earth orbit by uh, obviously the, the USSR on October 4th in 1957. Okay. So remember these time periods here. And I, I think this is interesting to note here that the word Sputnik uh, originally meant fellow traveler. Hmm. All right. But now it's become synonymous with satellite, obviously, in modern Russian. But so it's a small sphere made of aluminum, had five scientific goals. Number one, test the method of placing an artificial satellite into Earth's orbit. Number two, provide information on the density of the atmosphere. Number three, test radio and optical methods of orbital tracking. A lot of these words, it's hard to understand. That's fine. Number four, determine the effects of radio waves through the atmosphere, which is interesting. And that's something that the space race um, in the 2020 standards is working on. And check principles, number five, check principles of pressurization used on the satellite. So this is all basically testing long-term, uh, really what the IGY originally had intended, okay? 
Now, another thing to know, which I think this is pretty interesting, the metal arming key of Sputnik 1 is the last remaining piece of it. It prevented contact between the batteries and the transmitter prior to the launch. It's now on display at the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum. So go and check wow. that out. Yeah. Okay. So they launch Sputnik in 1957. The successful launch pretty much shocked the world. I would say, especially the United States. It gave the, the former USSR the bragging rights of putting the first human-made uh, human object into space. And the U.S. was pretty much unaware of how successful the Soviets really were. And I really think it, it shocked the world. And it shocked the Americans to the point where, like, listen, we, we, we can't have this happen. Uh, we, they had to do something. Americans had to do something that would one-up the Soviets or, better yet, do something that would not just show the world that they compete with the Soviets, but they were superior to the Soviets. And I think that's the key. So does it really matter? Because I think about this. Does it really matter who's the first if the second attempt at the space uh, space race is better than the first? Right. You know what I mean? That's that a should good point. Matter. All right. right. So that's that's kind of where where the Americans are thinking, like, listen, if if you're going to get up there, let's make it even better than the first. So the, even the second place finisher overshadows the first place. And that, in essence, is really what the Cold War was all about. Right. I mean, we, we talk about Vietnam and Korea, obviously, with our students. But really, the competition in terms of technology – and the space race epitomizes that, was really at the core of the Cold War. Yes. Yeah, exactly right. So I think this is where uh might shock some listeners. Mm -hmm. This is where it shocked me because I never knew this thing existed. Okay. So we're at the we're at the beginning of this space race. A year after the Soviets had shocked the Americans and the world with Sputnik, the Americans launch a 118-page plan produced by the Army. In June of 1959, and it's called Project Horizon. Okay, you ready for what the, this is? Unbelievable. And I'm thinking 1959 too. I'm, I'm keeping that date in okay. the back of my mind, Phil. 1959. This 118 page document. Its sole goal of Project Horizon was to establish a permanent military outpost. Ready? On the moon. Amazing. On the moon. So when I first heard about this, I'm like, there's no way that's true. There's right. no way. That, that's got to be some conspiracy. I, I went into the Project Horizon document, 118 pages. It is available online. Uh, you can scope through it. You can read through it. There's there's pictures and images, which we'll post on social media. It's, it is absolutely fascinating. Uh, and it was classified. There's some things that, that revolve around this story, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But it is unclassified now it's been declassified so you're talking a full decade prior to neil armstrong <laughs> stepping right. foot on the moon that's right this was already in the works it is it's funny you mention that because remember 1959 this was written and established 1959 that's three years prior to jfk giving that speech on september 12th in 1962 when he said hey by the end of the decade the united states would you know would land astronauts on the moon and everyone was like what is he nuts right right little did the american public know though as preposterous and as ridiculous that was, the secret was space planning didn't start at a speech like most think. It was already three years deep into the planning, which is quite incredible. Because I, after I read all this, I'm like, that changes the way I look at that speech mm -hmm. altogether. Because in my head, I'm thinking he was the one that inspired everybody else to say, hey, this is what we're going to do. When in fact, it was, it was the behind the scenes planning of these astronauts that said, no, 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 we're going to go to the moon. And he already had three years of planning to say to everybody, this is what we're going to do. And like you said, Phil, 
just to reiterate for our listeners, this preceded NASA. Yes. And this was really military driven. All military. Okay. So, all right. According to the Project Horizon document, the establishment of the outpost should be a special project having similar priorities to the Manhattan, excuse me, the Manhattan Project in World War II. Once again, here we go. Once established, the lunar base will be operated under the control of a United Space Command. Space, or certainly that portion of outer space encompassing the Earth and the Moon, will be considered a military theater. The control of all United States military forces by unified commands is already established, and military operations in space should be no exception. A unified space command would control and utilize, besides the lunar base, operational satellites and space vehicles, space surveillance systems, and the logistical support thereof. Other space commands might be organized as our operations extended to translunar space. So that's taken directly from the document. All right, so this is more than just, hey, let's establish a military outpost. This is like, we're going to militarize space. And I don't want to get too far ahead because I don't know where you're going. Um, but immediately, I, I think of the context of, of when this is happening and the fact that the military is involved and you're at the height of the Cold War. Is this primarily driven to thwart some sort of a nuclear attack by the Soviets? I think that it's in the back of their heads. And I'll, I'll get to the military st- uh, strategy behind this. Mm-hmm. But obviously, with, with the Army really headhunting this rather than NASA starting this, right. they see the threat of the Soviet Union, whether that's technological or nuclear. Okay. They definitely see that, okay. yeah, for sure. Now, part five in this document is called the de- degree of urgency. And direct quote here is, to be second to the Soviet Union in establishing an outpost on the moon would be disastrous to our nation's prestige, number one, and in turn to our democratic philosophy. So I think that's something that you might you might think in the back of your head. Number one, it was about prestige because that's the first thing they mentioned. Number two, our democratic philosophy. So they're probably seeing that red wave of, of communism and saying to themselves, listen, this isn't just about space race. This isn't just about military, but it's about saving our democracy because the Soviet Union with that kind of threat, they could change the scope of governments uh, throughout the world. If they have control of space, um, you have control of the earth. And if they're beating us in areas of like science, technology, then then I'm sure the Soviets are using that totally through propaganda right. to tell everyone, listen, we must be better. Exactly. We're leading the world in all of these different fields and the democratic nations aren't even on the same page. That's right. They're so far behind us. That's exactly That's right. That's very interesting, Phil. And then on top of that, the Soviet Union had already claimed that its citizens would be on the moon in 1967. Now, remember, anything we know about the Soviet Union is if they're admitting that publicly, mm-hmm. you know, that their citizens would be there, then the government would have to assume, our government would have to assume that the Red Army would be there too, right? Right, right. So it was, it was urgent for the United States to get there and to get there first. Because if they can establish a, a, a lunar outpost, then they would they would have protection over, you know, threats to the earth, but more so threats to democracy and specifically the United States. And one thing we got to remember is if the Soviet Union publicly says something, that means there's there's always right. more. There's right. always more to that. So the fact that they had already claimed that by 1967 there would be citizens on the moon, that probably means that there's something happening before that, too. And it's interesting to think we look throughout history currently as well. You have that sense of urgency, how quickly you can pool know-how, the minds, the money, 
and the technology to do amazing things. Oh, yeah, absolutely. If you have that sense of urgency. That's exactly right. And, it, and this comes from uh, an Army Lieutenant General, Arthur Trudeau. He said, a lunar outpost is of critical importance to the U.S. Army of the future. Um, let's see what else. He says, we have to protect potential United States interests on the moon. The story behind this secret uh, called Project Horizon, of course, and the plan to have an army base on the moon by 1966, quote, is the story of a great idea whose time has never come. Mm. All right. So I think that's an interesting quote uh, directly because there are some problems with Project Horizon that we'll get to. So the proponents of Project Horizon argue that America's ultimate goal on the moon should be to deploy moon-based weapon systems. Mm -hmm. Now imagine that. So looking up at the, the stars and the moon at night and wondering, oh my gosh, is there some sort of <laughs> military base out there right. in one of these craters that could launch some sort of attack on Earth that we would have obviously no control over? So moon-based military power would be a very strong deterrent to war, obviously, since an enemy would have obviously great difficulty preventing any sort of U.S. retaliation. Um, this was because the enemy would have a hard time reaching the moon. And if American forces were already there, they could counter or neutralize any hostile force that might land. So this, of course, was the was another reason that American military forces must reach the moon first. And then to establish a military outpost, the enemy would, would have no, no way to try to stop the U.S. from landing on the moon. So this is, this is their goal. Got to get there first. So even though Sputnik was in space first, we got to get to the moon first. So here's the plan and its goals. And then we'll, we'll get to the break. The plan was to build a self-sustained moon base that would serve as an outpost for exploration of the moon and further exploration of space. The base, which I think this is fascinating, remember 1950s and 60s, the base which would house 10 to 20 personnel permanently would be the first permanent manned installation on the moon and perhaps most importantly would provide a platform for the military if required to conduct quote, military operations on the moon. So you got to think, if America could build the atomic bomb, there was no reason it couldn't put a handful of soldiers on the moon. And the Army concluded that 75 Saturn II rocket launches would be achieved by the end of 1964, with 40 of these launches needed to put sufficient Project Horizon equipment into orbit for the lunar uh, base's construction. So after the break, we'll take a look at some of the things uh, that were obstacles to this plan. We'll also look at some of the plans of how do, you, how do you take 10 to 20 people and have a permanent outpost on the moon? And do we ever really follow through that plan to have a military outpost? Because I think a lot of the goals you're laying out for us in 1959 would be difficult logistically for 2021. Absolutely. So now do we address the fact that when we look at the moon, are we wondering, gosh, did those astronauts in Apollo 11, did they really go up there for a military outpost? Or is this did this plan fall flat? Makes we'll you think. <laughs> That's right. We'll explore that after the break. Thanks for listening to and supporting the Missing Chapter podcast. If it sounds like we're having fun and we enjoy bringing you a new episode every week, it's because we are. Not only are we having a good time, but as teachers, producing our own podcast has allowed us to connect with our students like never before. In fact, when people ask us where we got the idea to start our own podcast, we tell them our students. If you're an educator and would like the opportunity to create, produce, and maintain your very own podcast, go to our website, themissingchapterpodcast.com, to learn how we can help make that happen for you. Don't be intimidated. It's easy and fun, 
Go to themissingchapterpodcast.com to schedule an informative and interactive webinar with us today so that you can get started on your own educational podcast for tomorrow. You'll have a great time doing it, and we'll get the opportunity to work with us directly. Your hosts for the Missing Chapter Podcast, Phil Horander and Phil Schaff. Phil, this is fascinating. And I, during the break, I kind of expressed this to you. It's interesting how history works. And with recent developments and kind of our reinvestment in the space program, something that you touched on early on, you know, throughout the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, even a good portion of the 80s, you know, space was the goal. Right. Space was the goal. And specifically throughout a good portion of that, the moon, Mm -hmm. you know, reaching the moon, being able to do various things. But the United States in particular, we, we really haven't gone back to the moon. You don't hear any mention of the moon. Now space again is back in the fold. Right. And it's exciting. But, you know, as you talk about it, it makes me think, well, why the reinvestment today? We're always telling kids you learn history so that you can understand current events. Yep. And I feel like there's a great connection in particular with this story that you're telling us today. It, it, totally. Now, now, I think one thing that resonated with me is some of the history involved with you know, the, the Soviet Union and the United States, I think you could compare to present day United States and China because China's technology is really taking off, uh, pun intended, I guess, with, with space. Mm-hmm. So one of the things with the Chinese in space is the fact that they're trying to uh, and develop um, a lot of infrastructure in space to use for energy because there's so much energy in space, which in 2021 standards, we have the technology to, to harness. Well, I mean, they have the, they have the abil- ability to take that energy in space and send it down to radio waves as radio waves to cell phones, anything that needs to charge. And you can permanently charge your cell phones when you walk off the charger. That's amazing. So they have that infrastructure built. And that's one of the reasons why we have the Space Force. We had to have that Space Force. And I, I boy, I tell you, after knowing that we have the Space Force, it brings me right back to this 1959 era of Project Horizon to say, right. listen, if, if the Chinese are up there and they're using it to power cell phones, you have to assume that they could be powering it for something else. So we have to have a space force in order to counter those initiatives from uh, our adversaries. Right. And it makes you realize, too, how far we've come from 1959 when when really this was just in the preliminary stages. Yeah. And, you know, the plan was there. But logistically, how is it going to happen to, you know, will we be sending regular civilians into space right. in the near future? And it looks like we will. we will. Yeah. And I, it, boy, it, it reminds me of uh, the documentary I watched a, a few years back where there was a test pilot from Area 51. And he, he talked about the technology that's in that military base at Area 51 exceeds any sort of technological move you've ever seen by 50 years. And I think about that. And I, I said to myself, boy, you go back to 1959, the, the technological advances we've, we've had from that point to now, like you've said, is, is unbelievable. But there were obstacles that that this Project Horizon had to overcome, and this is one of the reasons why it really never uh, took hold. So what happened to Project Horizon and the Army's plan to have a manned lunar outpost? Well, first of all, there's technological challenges. So they were more difficult than the authors of Project Horizon had originally thought. For example, what do you do with the whole lack of oxygen ordeal? Well, scientists came up with a great but expensive plan. So here's what they suggested. They suggested that natural holes or caves could be dug into a tube-like structure covered and sealed with pressure bags to create living space, not only just on the moon, but quite literally in the moon. 
So this also had the attractive possibility of lessening the danger from meteorites and from temperature extremes on that lunar surface. So if you look closely, drawings in the Project Horizons document also show a buried cylindrical structure that included living quarters and an airlock to the whole surface. It's, it's unbelievable. So you, you look at this huge tube, it almost looks like a, a storage container. And then you have what looks to be almost like a balloon encasing around of it. And that would, that would hold the oxygen pressure for that uh, living quarter. And I think, I think to myself, once again, 50, 60 years ago, you're having 20 people on the moon. And anytime you look out in, in, in space, you're, you're saying to yourself, I wonder what they're doing up there. I wonder if they're okay. And, and this is, this is something that they were ready to carry out. Um, as for power, it would be provided by solar and nuclear energy. But remember, once again, late 50s, early 60s, how readily available was solar and nuclear compared to today? Right. You know, right. I mean, we have ways that we can, I mean, Tesla, you know, um, Elon Musk has the ability to change your windows into solar powered windows. He has the ability to take your shingles off your house and put mm -hmm. solar shingles on. So there's there's all sorts of solar possibilities, nuclear possibilities now. But for 1950s and 60s, that really wasn't, I mean, it was available but it wasn't as cheap to manufacture as, as it is now. Right. And, and, you know, using even these terms that you're using now, the regular person in American society and the public wouldn't even be familiar. They never heard these terms. That's true. You know, we talk about solar power. Well, certainly we've all heard of solar power, but it's just beyond the military, I'm guessing, and the government wasn't something that the regular ordinary American yeah. knew anything about. And you, you got to think, too. Uh, shipping costs across the world is expensive. Shipping costs to the moon? Right. What, what do you do for water? What do you do for food? Well, one of the solutions that these uh, scientists came up with was that oxygen and water could be extracted from the natural environment of the moon. Military personnel stationed on the moon would wear spacesuits, obviously, carry special weapons and equipment specifically for, for moon use. Now, even though there were a lot of technological challenges here, they did come up with solutions. But once again, I mean, those solutions cost a pretty penny. So Project Horizon ran into a budgetary uh, issue that was considerably more expensive, way more expensive than originally planned. So even though a project, or excuse me, a Manhattan Project scale effort might have worked, it would have required a huge increase to the U.S. government's defense budget. And just like anything else, as the alarm over Sputnik kind of became more dialed down and, you know, new news was taking place in the 1960s, it seemed that I don't know, there was diminishing political interest in funding a military base on the moon. So they had that to deal with, too. Uh, second issue, the expansion of the war in Vietnam. you got to think money and energy was taken off Project Horizon and it was given to the immediate issue at hand, which was, of course, the soldiers in Vietnam. Uh, finally, and most likely the, the most plan-altering obstacle came when the United States, Soviet Union, and the UK signed an outer space treaty in 1967. Uh, it was known as the Treaty on Principles Governing the Activities of States in the Exploration and Use of Outer Space, Including the Moon and Other Celestial Bodies. <laughs> that was the entire title. Um, so this international agreement limited the use of the moon to peaceful purposes. Now, just like any other treaty, you have to have someone enforcing that ordeal or else that's going to be taken uh, not as literal as a, as a treaty should be. But I don't know if we've ever gotten to that point yet, but it kind of seems that in 2021 with the Space Force, with China, as we mentioned earlier, that could be the direction um, that we, we need is, is some sort of maybe a world organization. 
you know, like a, a UN to make sure that these treaties are taken care of, even in space. Interesting. That's great. So really, the militarization of the moon was no longer an option at this point, uh, and it remains an impossibility since this international treaty is still in effect to uh, to today. And that's probably why they declassified these documents to begin with. And I'm sure the more that people are aware of this project, you'll get the inevitable like YouTuber or conspiracy theorist who says that the real reason why Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Mike Collins were were there on the Apollo 11 mission in 1969 was for military purposes, and there was there still is a military outpost on the moon, but that's as far out as the moon itself, you know? So I think a good way to sum this all up, especially in Cold War history perspective, is this. In the proposal of this Project Horizon to the Chief of Ordnance, the Department Department of Army uh, said the following, ready? And I quote, if a permanent base can be established first by the United States, the prestige and psychological advantage to the nation will be invaluable. I think that right there sums up what the Cold War is in one sentence. You want prestige, you want the competitive edge, but you also want that psychological advantage for your adversary thinking we're in second place. And that's the ultimate goal of Project Horizon. Even though it didn't per se take off, it's still in the back of the of the minds of our adversaries. That's amazing, Phil. And listen, you you touched on so much um, in this one episode, you really kind of encompassed an entire time period in U.S. history, which was the, the Cold War. Um, you know, one of the things that you relied a, a lot on in your research, and I know you, you, you've been showing me throughout the process, are these visuals, these sketches, things like that. Now that we do have the website up, we're, we're going to try to incorporate those visuals with, that we mentioned in various episodes yep. much more. So stay tuned for that. And just really... What, what a great story. The epitome of a missing chapter. <laughs> yeah. The epitome of a missing chapter that's been added to what we already know uh, about our space program. So thank you. And My pleasure. You, and, and you you know, we're in the middle of the summer. We appreciate people making the, the Missing Chapter podcast part of their summer uh, routine. Yep. And we hope that they keep listening. And we'll, we'll keep producing interesting, entertaining stories like what you heard today. And absolutely. And I, I think one of, the, one of the differences with this one, too, is that this, this was very easy for me. Uh, especially because, you know, in, in a lot of these history stories that we give you guys, we always mention and we always put a disclaimer out there. Some of it could be surrounded in myth and legend. This is this is easy because this is an, uh, a declassified government document and it's 118 pages. So we have a firsthand account rather than looking at, uh, you know, a bunch of different sources. There's really one source that you could dive into uh, and really just be amazed at. So this is uh, this is a story I'm glad to bring you guys. And once again, like Phil said, um, you know, follow us on Instagram, follow us on, on Facebook, email us. Uh, and this this is such a, a broad topic that we love uh, getting feedback from you guys. So thank you for listening and uh, we'll see you guys next time. Thank you for joining us. And until next time, I'm Phil Horander. And I'm Phil Schaff. Another chapter has been added to the history textbooks.